Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Let's go! Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Jodie Lee Trembath, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, coming to you today from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, we're bringing you the fifth episode in our STS season. For those of you just joining us, STS stands for either Science and Technology Studies or Science, Technology and Society, depending on who you ask. And it looks at issues of science and technology through the lens of the human. What are the cultural, societal, ethical, the human aspects of our rapid growth in these areas? And my guest today, Associate Professor Inga Mewburn, has quite the cult following of her own. And full disclosure, she also happens to be my PhD supervisor. Inga is the founder of an extremely popular blog, The Thesis Whisperer, which, if you peruse the comments section of her About page, has been saving PhD students' sanity all over the world since 2011. As an academic, Inga does research about researchers, specifically about PhD students and their supervisors, and that research also informs her role as the Director of Research Training here at the Australian National University. What I've always found fascinating about Inga's practice as an academic is the way that she doesn't conform to disciplinary boundaries. She's an ethnographer with a background in architecture. She's a machine learning specialist with a humanities focus. And her research philosophy leans more towards like the post-constructivist, the, the qualitative. But she's also a total nerd for statistics and graphs. And even though she's widely published and has multiple books, she also points out in this conversation that she actually hates writing journal articles, and I quote, with the heat of a thousand blazing suns. She prefers translating her work into contexts where the people she's researching, PhD students and their supervisors, will actually be able to use it such as her YouTube Patreon channel, where she provides her subscribers with how-tos on, well, all things research, or her latest book, How to Fix Your Academic Writing Trouble, A Practical Guide. So in this episode, we talk about how the machines that we humans create are reflections of our own values, but sometimes they reflect back things about us that we don't necessarily want to see. We talk about the future of research, and of work for that matter, and where machines and algorithms and other technologies will fit into that. And we always come back to the value of traversing boundaries and challenging accepted wisdom. So here it is, me and Inga Mewburn talking robot reflections, researching researchers, and welcoming our robot overlords. So you do research about researchers. Why is that important? Somebody has to. (laughs) It's actually a really big industry. Universities bring in a lot of money to this country. Mm. So basically we are a huge export industry and in every other export industry there's a lot of research, you know, what makes it run well, what makes it run not so well, how do we keep people in employment, how do we make sure we've got the best people there. So There's barely any research on this about Australian universities. There's a lot of complaining. (laughs) 
<laughs> there's a lot of critique. Yeah. But there's not a lot of informed discussion that actually relies on data. So it's literally because somebody has to. Yeah, really, someone has to. More yeah. people should. So you do that research using a range of methods and approaches, which has led you to call yourself post-disciplinary, or sometimes when you're being tongue-in-cheek, undisciplined. Yeah. I have this passage from a blog post that you wrote about interdisciplinary research a few months ago. So you said, I'm a super fan of interdisciplinary work. I'm happily post-disciplinary myself. My PhD was interdisciplinary and my current job is transdisciplinary. So being a post-disciplinary researcher who uses ethnography but also uses lots of other methods as well, what do ethnographic methods give you that other methods don't? It answers different types of questions. So lately I've been doing machine learning, as you know, which is investigating text. But when I did earlier work in research education, I was very interested, for example, in the problem or the opportunity or the phenomena, I should say, of whinging. <laughs> You would find many, many sources of that whinging, uh, yeah. in a university, yeah. yeah. And if you look at whinging, you know, why do we do it? And more to the point, why do we feel so good when we do it? Because mm. we wouldn't do it if it didn't feel so good. Having a good complaint is really fantastic and mm. you come away from a coffee just feeling great. Mm, it's cathartic. It, totally. I cathart on it a lot. I mean, lots of <laughs> us do. And, and that and gossip are kind of the lifeblood of the university. If we couldn't mm. gossip and we couldn't whinge. Over the workplace, I would argue. Yeah, it just wouldn't function. So mm. I was really interested in whinging because I witnessed one colleague tell off a group of PhD students for having a culture of complaint. And i just finished my PhD at the time and it just didn't ring right to me. First of all, really judgy. And secondly, I just didn't seem to provide a complete explanation. I think that's when I turned to ethnography. So ethnography is just a really considered look at what's right in front of your face, but familiar strange, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as you slow things down, start to take things apart, you notice things that in the moment just pass you by. And through doing that about whinging as just one example where I've used it, what I was able to see was that there's structure to whinging. You know, it follows a troubles talk script, which is Gail Jefferson's work. And you can see that script in action and you can see different iterations of that script. And if you look at what that script achieves, then what it achieves is closeness. Mm, so the people bond. People do bond because when you share a trouble with someone, one script is to share a similar trouble. And that's really non-judgy way of responding to troubles because the judgy way is, oh, here's your trouble, you should do X. And we know plenty of people do do that. Mm -hmm. And we all know how annoying it is when all you've wanted to say is, let off some steam. So sharing another trouble is a way to say, hey, I'm with you. I experience the same things. I empathise. I understand you. But it's also, as a social script, a way of learning from other people's experience. So if you have a whinge, someone else has a whinge back, and then they tell you maybe what they did, then that's an opportunity for you to learn maybe a social strategy that might work. Mm. So for me, that actually makes a much more satisfying description of whinging mm. than, than calling it a culture of complaint, which is a critical theory way of looking at it, naming it, and then finding all the instances of how it conforms to that name. Mm. Rather than that, you go to the first principles and say, well, what's it achieving? What's happening? What are people doing? So that's what really appeals to me about ethnography. I would do more of it if it wasn't so time-consuming and expensive. Yeah, well, that's the rub, isn't it? Putting money aside, what do you think ethnography doesn't do? Why use other methods and not use ethnography? I don't actually think humans have the capacity to follow the conversations in front of them 
the rapidity of that conversation and the interaction is very hard for humans to do. Also think sometimes, and it depends on where the aim of the research is, if the research is aimed at, say, changing management's opinion, ethnography is not very good at that. Why? It's often perceived as weak, partial, biased. It's not mathematical. It's not seen as rational. It doesn't sit well on a page. If you've got to summarise it, you can't put it in a graph. So a lot of my work in terms of the policy space is making cases for change and ethnography is not very good at that. It's good at providing an explanation of why something's happening but then if you want to go the next step and make a case for change then you've got to often switch to other methods. So often start with ethnography. So you used an ethnographic approach in your PhD and particularly used video ethnography so I'm wondering, does that tie into what you were just saying about the, the body as a tool and not only relying on the body as a tool? I wanted to look at what work hand gestures do in architectural design studios. So I want to work out what role they play. Is there any sort of pedagogical importance for them being there? Because there's a big push to move teaching and learning online. Mm. And architects are always unhappy with teaching and learning online. They're making all sorts of arguments back to management about why they can't do it, but those arguments were not underpinned by any evidence. So I set out to look at that. If normal ethnography is sort of just looking at the world and taking it in and analysing it, video ethnography is like having a microscope to do that Hmm. because you can take with digital technology, you can film an interaction and you can slow it down to frame by frame by frame. And in that slowing down, the intricacy of the gesture patterns was revealed. If we watch it at normal speed, you can't see the beauty of that. And if you then looked at the speech alongside the gesture, you could see the gesture was expressing the speech in a completely other mode that you just don't see at normal speed. You'd see things like the way that people interacted with computer screens, right? So in architecture, it's very important to sort of have a concept of um, a 3D object that come at, somehow protrudes from a 2D page mm. and that's what gesture does. It enables you to be able to construct a little virtual tabletop object on top of a flat representation. And for the listeners, Inga's actually doing this right now. She's gesturing, exactly. Gesture, yeah. Building up it. <laughs> so what was interesting about that is that that happened on the flat but when we slowed it down, we could also see people pulling things out of computer screens, holding them up to each other, manipulating them with their fingers and then putting them back inside the computer. Really? Yeah. Putting them back? Putting them back. They always put them back. They were very tidy. That is very tidy. Yeah. Architects are very tidy. Very tidies. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. It was endlessly fascinating. It was like I was torn between fascination and anxiety through my whole PhD. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Most people are. Would you say then that, like, could you put an architecture design course online? Yes, if you managed to have a virtual object that two people could touch and see each other touch. And the problem with most online learning and teaching is it focuses on the face. And the cameras that we have embedded in our screens just aim at the face. You can't turn, I'm just looking at your laptop now, the more that you tilt that screen towards the keyboard in order to perhaps capture your hands, the more that you'll likely turn your computer off during that interaction. The materiality of it is set up profoundly wrongly. And so I was able to make that argument. And actually people have used my thesis ever since to fight the Mm. online design studio. But it's totally possible for it to be done. Yeah, okay. Going back to what you were saying before then about trying to use ethnographic findings to make change, Mm. what 
other research has been brought in alongside your research in that area then to build that case or oh. is it not? No, it hasn't really. And, and I think perhaps like the stories that I was able to tell out of that and the stories that my colleagues can tell with that work probably is sufficient. So it's probably one, I could just talk to you about exactly what I did with the lid on your laptop. You immediately see the practical impossibilities of that. So as soon as they can say that, then they say, people mm. are like, oh, well, we don't want to solve that technical, concrete, actual real world problem. Therefore, discussion over, carry on. Mm. So maybe it doesn't need more because it can point to a single use case and, and make sort of judgments about practical constraints. Whereas I think you've got to prove the extent of to which those ideas are held. You've got to prove, you know, that you have evacuated every idea that is being held about that. There's a slightly more scalable kind of issue there. I think it probably is scale. Mm. When you need scale, then you need to move to some other mode, but we don't need scale. No, not for that question. Yeah. So it always all comes down to yeah. question. Yeah. yeah. But it is good to link it in a chain. I think it's like it means that you can always do a little bit of it. Yeah. Because it's the fun stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> so although you do research about researchers, you don't only do the typical things with that research, which you know typically would be publishing in journals. Mm. Your research goes to a lot of different places mm. and gets translated in a lot of different ways. Mm. Can you talk us through some of the other things that your research gets translated into and the other work it does? I hate writing academic papers. Do you? I hate it with the heat of a thousand blazing suns. <laughs> I, I just hate it. It's not that I can't do them. I find the format really boring and really stifling. So the actual writing process is dull. I find the circulation of them to not be circulating to the people that they actually affect. In my case, you know, my work helps supervisors and students most of the time. They don't read research on research journals. So the first move I made in that was starting the Thesis Whisperer blog and that was a way for me to translate my research into the public domain in a digestible format in which it's sort of like a newspaper people would want to read and then they can take it on or not. And it's also a chance for me to translate other colleagues' research, you know, with due attribution so that their research just didn't sit on the shelf because I was doing the research on research gig at the same time as a PhD student. So I sort of watched myself stagger through the swamps from the helicopter and was trying to yell down with a loud halo, stop doing that. <laughs> uh, so I had this weird kind of double existence of knowing exactly why I wasn't succeeding at what I was trying to do. So I got to feel the, the feeling of that and understand how important the feeling was. Did that help? A lot. In fact, that's probably totally informs the thesis whisperer is acknowledging those feelings, explaining them, placing them, putting the rational explanations against the feelings and helping people come to their own conclusions about that. So the blog was really important. Also just providing a space for PhD students to speak about their own experience because I don't own all of it or know all of it. So the blog was the first instance and, and for a long time the really primary way that I translated my research and it's so absorbing and there's so much work behind the scenes on it. It's crazy. Recently I've started a YouTube channel um, and the YouTube channel is interesting because it's a totally different genre, right? First of all, I thought I'll just start off doing a sort of reading or a riff or a sort of 
visual podcast, if you like, of my blog posts. I quickly worked out I didn't actually want to do that at all. And so they've ended up being me drawing diagrams, me showing you how to use a piece of software, really practical sort of how-tos because a lot of people ask me for that. Because gesture is important. Gesture is important. And it's got a Patreon channel to fund it because it's expensive buying all that kit. Um, One of my Patreons said it's very soothing watching me draw something. So (laughs) people like to watch me draw and that's my architecture background. So it's, it's a fun outlet. And there's a technical learning curve on that, which I'm enjoying because I'm quite geeky like that. And then we're building an app. So part of our research has been to explore what do employers want from PhD students. So it started off from my colleague Rachel Pitt's research where she did some interviews with employers and all types of employers are PhD students, right? So industry, health professionals and universities. And she found out that Pretty much employers were very happy with PhD student graduates, but the people who weren't happy were universities, which is bizarre because we design the training, Mm. we enrol people in it, we teach them uh, and then we examine it and then when we hire the products of all this work, we're not happy. So that started us on this whole journey of what the hell are we even doing here, people? Mm. Like maybe we need to just sort of pull the brakes on this for a while and maybe rethink what we're doing. A little bit. So PhD is a little bit of a habitual pedagogy. So we thought what's the way to investigate this gap is to actually look at the job ads academic employers put up or graduates and just do a content analysis of that and see if what's in the ad matches what we think we're teaching in the PhD. Turns out it doesn't. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Pretty much you can see in those job ads, teamwork is a huge thing. Well, the PhD is solitary. You know, communication is really huge. Well, we teach people journal articles, but we don't necessarily teach them to talk. We don't need to teach them how to do committee. So we, we found out all these things that are often packaged as additional to the PhD, actually being integral to the employability skill set, teaching obviously being another thing. And so the obvious next question was, well, what's a non-academic employer's one? If 60% of people now leave academia and they go and do other things, what do those people want? The first problem was trying to find these ads. So when you type in PhD into something like SEEK, all you see is academic jobs. Now, we've worked out why that is now because we've actually analysed the ads. So we built a machine learning model. And in that machine learning model, we programmed the ideal PhD graduate. So we had a series of what's called a coding schema. So we had a series of statements, which I can't share with you because they're commercially in confidence. But my <laughs> favourite one of, of the 11 or so is experty. <laughs> Very Nothing official else worked, sounding. but the machine understood experty. Right. So experty is, you know, that person that you come to because they know stuff yep. in an organisation. There's an expertiness. So we coded that. We, we took those descriptions, we applied them to the text and we taught the machine what a PhD-shaped job looks like. And when we put the machine to work on million job ads and it showed us the job ads that it had identified as requiring a researcher, broadly considered, 80% of those ads, they didn't ask for a PhD. Mm. We're starting to explore why that might be and we're going back to ethnography for that. Mm. So we've just identified this huge gap. And so we we had this algorithm. That's a pretty cool thing to have an algorithm. like Yeah. And then um, we wanted to keep developing the algorithm but we didn't have any money. And uh, because universities, because universities, um, but actually, we decided to try and commercialize it. So, we've built Postac, which will be out next year, Woo-hoo. but it's in closed user trial at the end of this week, which is very exciting. Yeah, we just saw it this morning exciting. that it's working, and that's been its whole other taking a something to commit through a commercialization process has been a whole other 
education in how to do knowledge transfer that I it's it's just an incredible journey. So I'm really excited about that because that's like deeply practical. Mm. And people often <laughs> say, Oh, Inga, you're so practical. I'm never quite sure how to take that in academia. Like mm. it is an insult. Yes, I think it is. But I've decided to own it. Yes, I'm practical. Yeah. And so I see communicating research as being a practical endeavour. You want to create change, you want to help people. What's the best way to get that out there? All you've got is communication. That's what it's all about. about machine learning. I think a lot of the time when people hear the word machine learning, they either imagine R2-D2 being mm -hmm. trained to get them coffee mm -hmm. or on the flip side of the coin, they imagine kind of drones or cyborgs with mm -hmm. fiery red eyes who are going to take over the world mm -hmm. because they've gotten smarter than the humans. Mm -hmm. Is machine learning either of those things? Maybe. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I don't do that. I think it's a broad area of study and that's mm. one thing that you don't see from a distance is how broad it is. We do what we like to call human in the loop type of machine learning which mm. is a co-creation of something. So what we're using is the machine to sort of both capture our knowledge and reflect it back at us but at the same time the machine's training us. Mm. And we, we're writing a book about this next, that's our next project together, Will Grant and Hannah Suleiman and I. Um, is to sort of talk about the fact that when a social scientist or an anthropologist or anyone for that matter who's looking to collaborate with a machine, it's a collaboration. They shape you, you shape them. What you make is is this nexus in between. And so the machine does stuff that you don't anticipate and that's really exciting. Mm. Can you give so, us an example? Well, we got our first batch of sort of findings back and one of the batches of findings is saying what of this coding schema matters in a PhD shaped job what's the most important thing well the most important thing that came back was ability to work autonomously in attention to detail we had projected that it would be expertiness and something around creativity that I can't tell you because it's commercial incompetence <laughs> but we thought it would be you know ability to surf with the currents of knowledge and you know make knowledge, not knowing what the outcome is and all the things we tell ourselves we are as researchers. Mm. But actually in these ads, what they want is your attention to detail and your ability to do it and do it well without much oversight. So to be very autonomous. Um, I rang up Will when I got this and I said, the machine should be wrong. This is wrong, Will. We've made a mistake here. Something. He's like, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And then, you know, half an hour he rings me back. He goes, so I've talked to Janie, who's his wife, who's a psychologist, and Janie laughed. And Janie said, yeah, of course, you think you're all that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you think you're experty and creative and, like, cool. That's what you think you are. What you are is a kind of a pedant. Oh. And then we thought about it. We're like, well, when we go to hire a research assistant, what do we look for? Those qualities exactly. So it was just a really great way that the machine kind of ripped the veil of kind of human subjectivity from eyes and was like, I see you human. Yeah. I see you human. I mean, no wonder researchers are scared. Yeah, well, researchers are scared of in vivo. So, like, they haven't even gone to where it's going and it's going to take over really fast and this worries me. Why? I fear that people will step into the void of doing this research who aren't trained with all our subtlety and nuance around 
subjectivity, intersubjectivity, ethics, um, because there'll just be so much to do. There is so much research to do because this is potentially endless what we can make with these machines. I don't buy any of that. It's going to take our jobs. No. No. Well, I lived through the 90s, you know, the digitisation of the workplace, and I don't see there being less work. So I'm, I'm very sceptical. But what it will do, which is always done, is some people will be left behind. So I worked in architecture offices in the mid to late 90s. And I went, when I went in, there were three computers and 50 desks with people drawing on them. Mm. And they were the architects that wore bow ties so that they're, they're tied in drag in the ink. That's why architects wore bow ties. And... Um, over the years that I worked in the office, it swung around from being 50 desks to 50 PCs and one desk for people to draw on, and that was a matter of a couple of years. It was astonishingly fast, and I jumped on that train because I had a skill set that was way ahead of colleagues who were in their 50s and they didn't survive in the profession and they left, hmm. and they had a wealth of knowledge. We really lost good people, and I fear the same will happen in anthropology, social science. And I don't see people feeling the urgency that I feel about it. I might be catastrophizing, <laughs> but, I, you know, as we have seen companies take over and drive this knowledge revolution, not really universities, mm. well, they've leveraged off our research, but they can move faster. Yeah. And I fear that when it comes to translating human jobs into computers, I think I'd rather have that done by people like anthropologists no disrespect to people with business degrees, but they're not trained to look for the same things and no. to think holistically the way an anthropologist thinks. I personally agree with you that the machines are not coming for our jobs, holus bolus, because something that, say, an anthropologist can do is look at a workplace and say, you know, here are all the human elements of this workplace that a machine wouldn't do better and here are the things that a machine would do better that would actually allow the humans in the space to do the things they do well oh, absolutely even better absolutely so are we going to be given a chance to do that though you don't think so i don't think so i i don't see that we're the standing army of people to do that and whether i'm saying we because at the moment i'm just identifying with anthropologists just for the moment you know um trans we're not training enough yeah. I mean, we looked through the jobs and there was one job for an anthropologist in 2015 in Australia, one that said anthropologist. Ouch. Ouch. Uh, plenty of jobs want anthropology skills, mm. plenty, but then you won't be doing the pure anthropology that you would if the job was called anthropologist. But why aren't we having hundreds of jobs called anthropologists? Because actually now is the time we need them. Mm. But we're not geared up. What do you think is the major difference between the way that like informal thinking around observation compared to trained observation? One of my queer friends said to me once that every person who's non-binary or other sexuality is a natural anthropologist. Hmm. He said because you grow up sitting on the sidelines and trying to work out how you do or don't fit. Mm. So I think... So what's the difference between someone who's had to do that all their life in order to pass? You could ask that of any minority as well, actually. Mm. So I think anthropology is kind of innate, but I think the difference with training is the systemization of it and the communication of it and the ability to squeeze something out of it that is actually useful. Like mm. both of, All of us can you be anthropologists in order to observe the world around us and make better decisions. 
but only an anthropologist does that in a structured way. How do you see machine learning impacting? Well, I think we can make really terrible machines, scary. Well, consider medicine, medical anthropology, right? So machines, my colleague Hannah Suleiman works in uh, machine learning in health a lot of the time. Machines can look at, say, a whole lot of your test results and spot your risk factor for something or they can spot your chance of surviving given a certain kind of treatment and say, well, actually, it's not worth it. So if a machine like that's embedded where it's up front and you can see it and you can say, well, actually, bugger you, machine, we're giving this person the cancer treatment because it will prolong their life to some extent and say goodbye to their loved one. Mm. But what if that's not visible What if it just sits behind deciding what drugs get dispensed or not? And you don't see the basis of that decision-making in action. That decision-making is invisible to you. Yeah. Like an anthropologist would think, what's the effect on the community? What's the kinship networks? What's the broader society impact of not giving this person another three, six months? Mm. That's how an anthropologist would think. Can a machine be trained to think Absolutely about those can. things yeah but they, they are just reflections of ourselves they're not totally reflections though it's like I was saying they're kind of like another species because they don't have that emotional lens on themselves that's why it was showing us things about ourselves mm. that we didn't want to see in the case of me and Will we didn't want to think about ourselves as just pedants <laughs> who gets things done <laughs> we want to think ourselves as really creative you know so it showed us that actually that's not how to see yourself. Can we talk about your software that observes what you're doing on your computer? (laughs) What's it called? Timing. Timing. Oh, my God, timing is the best software. (laughs) (laughs) You should see Inga right now. Like she's she's almost blushing. She's got a crush on her software. Oh, yeah, I've got a crush on it. Yeah, yeah, I've got a crush on it. Yeah, okay. So, okay, timing is a software for Mac specifically that observes what you do on your computer all day and then analyzes, it puts it into categories for you of, say, now you're doing administration, now you're doing research. Do you get any say over? You can override it. Right, yeah. Mm. And then at the end of the day, it'll tell you how you've spent your time. It'll give you a billion graphs on it. Right. Okay. (laughs) So you're excited about this. Maybe start by telling me why. It's enabled me to achieve some semblance of work-life balance, which has been absolutely instrumental to my mental health over the last six months. I really reached burnout point last year at about October in retrospect. And part of that was the constant guilt you feel as an academic that you're not doing enough. And it's partly a Protestant work ethic of I haven't got my hands dirty today. I don't feel exhausted. My back doesn't hurt. Therefore, I should keep going. Mm but I'm a proud union member. And so in the end, I was sort of like, you paid for this many hours. Plus I want to do all these things like a YouTube channel. Like I'm now the convener of the Ally Net, the academic convener of the Ally Network here on campus. That won't fit in my workload. Thank you. That won't fit in my workload. Therefore it's volunteers. So if I've got excess capacity past 35 hours a week, perhaps I should decide where to spend that next six, seven hours that I'm happy to work. Mm. So I'm ha- I've worked out I'm happy to work about 42 hours a week. More than that, I feel really tired. Mm. And timing's enabled me to see that. Yeah, right. It's given me the data. Again, it's reflected back on yourself, just like the machine reflected back at myself that I wasn't as creative. My value wasn't necessarily in how creative and cool I was. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Damn> timing, <laughs> timing has really been the come to Jesus moment about how long things actually take to do. Mm. And then the endless requests you get for 
please write us a book chapter. I know how long that takes now. I look at my diary and I go, can't do it. And the things that I like doing, I think they take half as long as they take. Things I don't like doing, I overestimate by three quarters. So if I have to do something in a spreadsheet that's financially related, when I put that in my diary previously, I've thought that'll take me an hour and a half. It will take 15 minutes, Hmm. 20 minutes, actually. It's just because I'm hating it. Time is relative. Time is emotional. Whereas something I enjoy doing, like a blog post, I always say to people, oh, it only takes me an hour. No, 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 no. No? No, it's about three. Right. Yeah, when I, if I'm honest with myself. That makes me feel so much better. Well, Mine definitely take a long time. Yeah, there's a lot of tidying to do. There's yeah. a lot of rereading. There's a lot, you know, I can bang it out in an hour, but to the finished product, if I want it to be beautiful, it's three. Mm. Yeah, and so timing just forces you to be honest with yourself. Also, <laughs> over the last week where there's been a lot happening in family life, there's been just a lot happening with health. You know, if the clock ticks over 35 hours and seven minutes, I looked up the other day and it's like 35 hours and seven minutes. I'm like, right, I'm out of here. Mm. It was three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Normally I'd feel like at least had to put time in until dinner time. Mm. But I took my efficiency dividend. You know what I did? I watched Netflix. Awesome. And I felt great about it. No guilt. No guilt. So... In my first year of my PhD business, Mm -hmm. um, I followed Inga around for a week uh, to shadow her because I was practicing shadowing for my my PhD fieldwork. And I made notes about everything she did. And so what I'm wondering is how is it different to have me following you around making notes about what you're doing and noting the time that you're doing everything and telling you at the end of the day here's all of the meetings you had and this is what you said and giving you that Mm. reflection back on yourself how Mm. is it different to being observed by timing yeah well I have to be nice to you (laughs) that's true (laughs) so one other piece of machine software I'm very fond of is Grammarly right and I got onto that by my sister who did her master's and used it and she said that the great thing about Grammarly is I can yell at it (laughs) <laughs> I yell at Grammarly all the time. I get what she's saying. Like, Grammarly, what? What What are you thinking? Are you on crack? Complaining you know, I feels never, good. Probably not say that to a PhD student. Probably I believe best. some supervisors do, but I'm not that kind of supervisor. I'm very pleased by that. <laughs> but that, that in itself, that little exercise you did was really illuminating. Because actually it scared me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. When I saw, especially the multitasking that I was doing, Mm. especially the, there was one moment you wrote about where I was following my son's progress home from school on Find My Friends on my iPhone and simultaneously appearing to listen to something in a committee. And you thought I wasn't paying attention. And then you realized I was because I was able to speak up. Yeah, somebody asked you a question and without even like switching apps, you answered the question like with so much detail and you were obviously completely engaged in the conversation that was going on as well as completely engaged with what you were doing on your phone. Yeah, that sort of split attention. That's what I mean about not being present. Mm. So the technology enables you to not be present. And, and be present and simultaneously. Be present, be present in multiple places, mm. you know, and but that's why I call it the fog. It's okay to do that analysis. Actually, we should all do that analysis, I think. Mm. That's why I'm such a super fan of timing timing, because it's not in the cloud. Oh. It's completely owned by you on your computer. It's private. Mm-hmm. You don't have to share it with anybody, although you will be surprised what it does to a HR person when you put a graph down on the table. <laughs> this is how I spend my time. So one of the things that my manager and I were trying to nut out was 
you know, how much of my load should be teaching? And she proposed a figure of 50%, for which I was horrified. <laughs> um, but I was able to walk into the next meeting a couple of months later with the time and graph and go, you know, actually, you're right. I spend 50% of my time on teaching. My promotion stuff should have, should reflect how much time I spend on this. Mm. Because I don't, you know, I might punch above my weight in research, which I do, but I shouldn't be asked to carry that in 20% of my time when 50% of my time is actually allocated to teaching. I should be judged on what I achieve there. So it seems like Mm. another example of the machine reflecting something back to you that you didn't necessarily want to hear, but you eventually realised was probably accurate. Yeah, that's why I welcome our robot overlords if they are programmed correctly. <laughs> By us. <laughs> By us. Yes, mm. indeed. All right. Can I ask one more question? You can. So in your ideal world, what might the future of research look like? Mm. I would love PhDs to not be a solo endeavour. Really? Yeah. How would that work? I don't know. But I would love that you come in and you're not just judged solely on your work, you're judged for your contribution to a team mm. and you work on big, big problems that require more than one person to Wicked answer. Wicked problems. Wicked problems and that you really feel engaged with making a difference and that you've got time in that to to do that sort of practical knowledge translation that I'm talking about. And so that then you can see do I become an academic? Do I make Netflix? Do I go into government? Do I do these other things? Because you can take on those kinds of projects, those outside projects. You could work across the creek with a computer scientist together and you'd learn incredibly valuable things. I think we're still really stuck in this monastic model of me in my office slash cell and the next person in their office slash cell Mm. and we don't really talk to each other people around in fact people have studied this the people around you inside your department are not not likely to be the people you work with or interact with people interact with people over email in a global community Mm. and your closest colleague might be across the world because they're the one who have the same nerdy interests that align so why aren't we bringing that into research and if we started off the phd like that what a different university would become yeah i think it would profoundly change the dynamic of the university to start being more collective, not being monks. Yeah. I never wanted to be a monk. Did you ever want to be a Though monk? someone does do your laundry, there is that. I would love that. Yeah. Maybe I do Makes want to be a dinner, monk. Makes your dinner, does your laundry, sweeps your floor. <laughs> On that excellent note, I think we'll end it there. Inga, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been fun. and Associate Professor Inga Muban. Today's episode was produced by me, Jodie Lee Trembath, with help from the other familiar strangers, Dr Julia Brown, Simon Theobald, and our newest familiar stranger, Kylie Dolan. Our executive producers are the brilliant Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung, and we have some extremely clever interns working with us at the moment, so thanks also to Dominic Harvey-Taylor and Karen Zhang. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. 
And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. And if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. And please, if you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, come and have a chat about all things people and culture over at The Familiar Strange Chats. And let's not be strangers anymore. Our music's by Pete Dabro. Special thanks today to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>